Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I'll just reiterate, Ben and I are friends and are automotive journalists. In fact, you can find our work all over the internet. Ben, why don't you tell the people where they can find your work? You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine and TechSpot. And before we get started, I also want to talk about our Ko-Fi page, which is a way that you can contribute to our podcast. Um, you know, we don't really we don't really have any ads or anything like that. So if you like what we're doing, you can head to our Ko-Fi page. It's ko-fi.com slash unnamed automotive podcast. Um, and you can contribute. You can donate whatever you feel like uh, donating. And sometimes you don't even have to donate at all. We'll still be putting out the same old content week after week. Right, that, Ben? That's, yeah, it's, it's that's K- Ko-Fi with a K, right, Sammy? Yes, ko-fi.com. All right. Um, let's get started, Ben. I have a car to talk about. It is the BMW 330e. What do you think of that? Okay, so we were talking. I threw just, you for a. I threw you for a loop with that extra different vowel. I wasn't end. expecting the e, and um, we were talking before the podcast about how I haven't driven a hybrid BMW 3 Series since I think the Active Hybrid 3, which, which is was, like. Two generations old? Uh, it's, it was quite a long time ago. And and <laughs> that was more of a power-oriented hybrid than an efficiency-oriented hybrid. I, I might have driven it, I'm forgetting, but this is this is in my memory. It's the active hybrid that stands out. Okay, so let me talk to you a bit about the, uh, the about my experience with the 330e. Because first of all, there's something that I liked about it, and it's the stupid – you're going to laugh at me so hard for saying this. It is so nice to drive a sedan again. Like to dr- not drive a crossover or something that's not bl- blending a bunch of worlds – the just the fact that it's a sports sedan um, just made the car feel so natural, so easy to drive, um, and and easy to place on the on the streets, and it was comfortable. Like I really did enjoy that. Like I am, like I'm listful for that. Even the sedan experience is that strange? It's the not strange. I mean, it, you know, I enjoy driving sedans as well. I don't know why it feels weirdly guilty to say that. Like I know, I, I, I know. That's what I mean. <laughs> When that I was coming up, yeah, but I, I I miss I also miss vehicles that are easy to park and small and um not small but I mean just not overly large for their purpose I guess is yeah. where I'm going with that that wrap around you like that it's 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 perfectly good but um let's get to talking about the 330e first of all the three the current three series um they're big they're they're a pretty big departure from what they used to be I know a lot of people might rem- like a lot of enthusiasts paint the 3 Series as being an enthusiast-oriented sports sedan, and I don't think that's quite the case. They are still fun to drive, but uh, sports sedan isn't exactly the right word for it. These things are heavy these days. They're loaded with equipment. They're pretty comfortable, um, high-tech, and full of nannies and stuff like that. So if you're looking for something that's kind of pure, I don't think this is it, but that isn't to say that it isn't that this is a bad car or, or not fun to drive, because as I said... Uh, maybe in comparison to all the crossovers we've been driving, I really did enjoy my time with it. Um, it's, uh, you know, so many of the luxury cars uh, from Germany, I, I think Mercedes-Benz was one of the first companies to really just kind of not pretend anymore about sports sedans in its more affordable versions of the, the C-Class. And once that happened and, and people stopped chasing BMW as kind of the bogey for what these cars should be, uh, Audi followed suit, and then BMW itself was like, you know what, who are we really competing against anymore? People want a comfortable car. They want the badge. That's important. And and it's not cynical to say that. It's it's a part of the marketing for these vehicles. So there was a sea change in the German cars. I think um, Jaguar kind of tried to keep things sporty with the XE, and nobody bought it. Yeah, so what's the deal with the poor XE? I, um, I just think that it's, you know, you, you got to sell cars that people want to buy. And as much as we want every car to be sporty and fun, I mean, I don't right. even actually want every car to be sporty and fun. I just want them to be good at what they're supposed to do. And right. the shift in these cars as to what they're supposed to do is, it, it's important. Right. Perfect. I think that's a really important thing to say. But when it comes to the 330E, we're adding an extra element, and that's electrification. This vehicle has a plug-in hybrid powertrain. That means that in addition to the 2-liter four-cylinder engine that you could get with a normal, I think, BMW 330, 
um, you get an extra powertrain, an extra electric motor with, with 107 horsepower and uh, 77 pound-feet of torque. Now combined, that means you get 288 horsepower and 310 pound-feet of torque, which means that it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit more powerful than the regular 2-liter turbo-equipped um, 3 Series, but far less powerful than the um, 6-cylinder models. But it does have a lot of torque, and there's something very interesting about this um, this powertrain is that it has something called extra bo- extra boost. Wait a minute. X? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Extra boost with an X. I think I had a, with a an pair X. of X. An X. Like, like we're in the 90s again. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I had a pair of Sony headphones that had extra boost on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is pretty much what that is. You get a little bit of a, um, extra bass going on when you put your foot down and put the car into, stro- into sport mode. I actually have no idea what extra boost really is. Um, but every time I put it into sport mode, there was a sport mode with extra boost and a sport mode without extra boost. And did and you I notice just, a difference? No, no, I just use the extra boost all the time. I'm like, this is pretty good. Um, I, um, I think, so you, you mentioned that the, the, the setup doesn't have quite as much torque as the six-cylinder versus the car. But I'm assuming that the torque from that electric motor, you said it's, what, 106 pound-feet? Yeah. yeah. I, I assume that comes on right away. It does. And I have to admit, like, even though those numbers sound really, like, mundane, the car felt really good off the line. It was, there was never a moment. And I think this has a lot to do with gearing. This has an eight-speed automatic transmission, um, and you can get the 330E in both uh, rear-wheel and all-wheel drive. Um, but the car felt really good off the line and cruising at speed, and I'm talking, like, high speeds. This thing can really manage uh, that 70-mile-per-hour or higher um, highway cruise. I loved it. I thought that was really good. I was un- I was expecting this to be a kind of heavy, efficiency-oriented BMW, but that isn't the case here. And when but- you heard the four-cylinder come on, did it sound raspy and kind of you know, like it was thrashing, working hard, or was it decently smooth in comparison with the rest of the experience? Right. I mean, I think it's the same as the regular four, uh, the four cylinder version of the three series, which is, it, it sounds good. It sounds fine. Um, you definitely notice it. I mean, that's the usual caveat when you have a plug-in hybrid powertrain, you know, when it goes from off to on, you're going from like silent to NVH, like lots of noise and vibration. You'll notice it all the time. So, Even with a luxury-oriented car like this, you, you'll notice that, that noise and that vibration. But it doesn't really upset the car or anything like that. And I did find that the, the, the engine was really aggressive at turning itself off. Usually we have the other way around where um, in, a, in a hybrid engine, the engine just wants to fire back up. Oh, you need extra power? Here I come. Here I come. Here I come. Yeah. And I'll stay on until I'm for sure certain that you don't need me. Um, and that isn't the case. This car seemed to turn off that motor pretty frequently. And coast, let you coast very easily, very quickly on that electric motor and use that to, to fill in any sort of gaps. And it fires back up really, really quickly, really easily. And I was pretty impressed with the refinement here, which is a big departure from what you mentioned. The Active Hybrid 3, if I remember correctly, it felt like two cars. It felt like you either drove it in all-electric mode or you either drove it in, like, the gas motor version well- of the car. And it just – there was no, like, blending of the world. Right? No, and, and that was an earlier hybrid too. But that was back when BMW was still on a very high-performance kick with all of its electric vehicles, right? So you right. didn't necessarily – like, the smoothness wasn't necessarily important as long as you got that big bang of acceleration when, when you wanted it. Um, and that kind of I, – I wanted to ask you – how much more are you paying for the 330e versus the standard four cylinder and is it similar in price to the six cylinder like is is this a, a a situation where you have to choose between like the faster bmw or the more economically and environmentally friendly bmw it is a very big difference in terms of pricing from the uh, six cylinder model so if you're going to get into a six cylinder they call it the m340 now you're going to be spending about Oh, this is the wrong. This is the wrong currency. Give me a minute, Ben. Oh, how many? Cur- <laughs> Wait, what's going on in your office right now? Do you have oh, hold like- on? You don't know. You don't need to talk about. We don't need to talk about my my. I'm picturing like a croupier with a whole bunch of po- poker tokens and like. <laughs> um, but it, you know what? I think it's it's a really reasonable price. I think actually the 330e is closer in price to the regular four cylinder, which I think is uh, is. Pretty attractive pricing. Yeah, I mean, let me we've just make talked, sure I get these prices. I, I know that. Yeah, so it's a it is a big difference between the 330 uh, E and the M340. In fact, ten thousand dollar difference. Okay, and from the base car, what's the difference? Uh, Three thousand. Oh wow! So I mean, yeah. can you think of a reason why you would not get this version of the car? 
you'd really have to be on a budget for one. You'd have to be like, I can't spare that extra three thousand bucks. Which is like what eight percent of the purchase price? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then second of all, this car weighs north of four thousand pounds. And how much does the regular – I'll look up the 330, regular 330 weight. But it's because, you know, we say it's another $3,000. But in the world of BMW, you're not buying the car. You're leasing it, like almost always. Yeah. Or yeah. So in the payment, I don't think you would notice that extra money. No, I don't think so either. Um, and I also think the equipment was quite generous in this ve- in this vehicle. I think maybe my biggest um, disappointment with the car was it had um, pretty flimsy-feeling kind of um, accents and trim. Okay. But the rest of the car, the, the seats were pretty decent. Um, the steering wheel is that nice, big, thick BMW sedan steering wheel. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know feels, what you're talking about. It feels sturdy in your hands. Um, you've got that really cool digital gauge cluster. You've got an, um, the new iDrive infotainment system with wireless Android Auto, which is really, really well, well done and well integrated. Um, I think there were discussions about that being sort of a – a subscription-based model, and I don't know if that's come into effect yet. So you need to be in it. You need to be paying attention as to how the options are being priced out in this vehicle. And yeah, my car had heated seats. I didn't think uh, every time I pressed it, I was uh, depositing some change into BMW savings account there. <laughs> um, Pay-as-you-go heated seats is the dystopia we deserve, Sammy. <laughs> I, I agree with you. So I looked uh, up. I looked up the weight, and uh, the lightest BMW 3 Series, which I'm assuming is like a base base 330, is. 3582. Uh, so you're probably looking at 450 pounds of extra weight for the hybrid. That right. would be the only difference. Um, I think. And you kind of feel it in the corners, kind of. Yeah. I think that the model that I have, I think one of the more important things you got to talk about when it comes to um, efficiency oriented vehicles or, or, you know, electric cars is sometimes they use duds for tires, like really, if it, like roll, low rolling resistance tires that have zero grip. Um, and that really impacts the performance of the car. I didn't, it didn't seem like, sorry, I didn't check the specs on these tires. It didn't seem like these were, um, limited traction kind of, or, or low rolling resistance kind of tires. The car did zero to 60 in under six seconds, almost five and a half, um, which is really, really good for, um, a four cylinder equipped three series, something weighing 4,000 pounds, man. Like that's solid. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm trying to figure out which one I would buy because, I like the electric version of the X5, which I think is the 35E. I'm not sure exactly the name of it. We talked about it on a recent podcast episode the last few months. And I thought it was the best all-around X5. It doesn't really cost any more than the base. Like It's a negligible difference for a lot more power. And you don't need the twin-turbo V8 in the the, uh, XM50i, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. So it, it really felt like the sweet spot to me. But now I'm looking at the 330E. And, you know, there's that extra 450 pounds. I'm looking at the fuel mileage. Combined, it gets 28 miles per gallon, which is only – I'm sorry. This can't be right. No, you're – the, the combined fuel mileage doesn't make sense. Okay. This is, I think what you're getting at is that's the combined fuel mileage of it operating in, in hybrid mode with no battery with no battery. Yeah, because battery. if you look at the com- combined mileage for a regular 330, it's 30 yeah. miles per gallon. <laughs> yeah, and then you look at the nice. 330e, and it's 28 miles per gallon. No, I, it, that doesn't make sense. And I and I do have to admit, um, I didn't drive it a lot with the with a full battery. When you do have a full battery, you get 20 to 22 miles of all electric range, which is okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, you charge that up for a little bit, and the like I said, the car really makes use of that electric motor. It seems like it wants to, it almost like it defers the electric motor over the gas motor, which is the opposite of so many other hybrids. Yeah. It gets 75 MPGE, which is a very difficult to understand, um, <laughs> metric, form, yeah. metric that I'd never use, but I understand that, you know, when the battery's dead and it's hauling around that extra weight, of course it's going to get le- worse fuel mileage than a standard 330. Right. But, uh, I think that, uh, the the idea of being able to do like let's say you, you just have a day where you're running errands 22 miles is a fair amount of of driving you could probably get a lot done on electricity alone and Indeed. then when when you need to do something else you can do that just by dipping into the gas engine so it's best of both worlds it's i don't know 500 pounds heavier okay that's not the end of the world if you're not expecting a sporty experience i think it probably makes a lot of sense as a comfortable entry level luxury car so that's the, the the other thing is I wonder if I'm just getting so I'm getting I'm feeling kind of enthusiastic about it because it's been so long since I've driven 
um, a sedan, a sports sedan, something like this. And I just feel like I need to temper my expectations because, yeah, it is a bit heavy. Um, Plug-in hybrids do have the um, added limitations of being heavier, carrying around two powertrains. If you're never charging it, you're going to be you're going to feel like you're wasting money. But the added added cost of just about three or four thousand bucks um, and those potential benefits seem to outweigh the 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 cons here. Yeah, I just want to make another point about plug-in hybrids. You and I are pretty into them, um, and we've talked a lot about them on the show in a positive light. But I don't know about into them. Like, well, I, don't know I mean, you keep means. sending me all those photos like, late at I night mean, of plug-in no, wait, hybrids. Like, those aren't, like, okay, yeah, You're sometimes. like, check out this charging station I found on the internet. I'm like, Sam, yeah, level stop, two charger only. <laughs> you got to stop sending me all these level two photos. But um, I want to bring up the fact that they're not right for everyone and for a very specific reason. Uh, obviously, there's multiple reasons, but the one that comes to the forefront of my mind is I have a very good friend who wants to buy an electric car. And he currently has a Subaru Outback, an XT, and uh, he can't buy an electric car because he doesn't have off-street parking. He lives he, – he owns his own home, but where he lives, there's just no way to have a driveway or a garage. And he doesn't go to work because uh, he – you know, pandemic, but also he works remotely – Anyway, so he's never going to be charging at work. So there's no like use case where an electric car makes sense. And that goes double for a PHEV, which is a vehicle you're probably going to have to charge much more often because the battery is that much smaller. So here's someone who wants to buy a car but can't do it because infrastructure is not even close to being where it needs to be. And this is something we touched on briefly last week when we were talking about the Mach-E Mustang. Absolutely. I agree with you. As somebody who lives in a condo, um, I believe like the amount of work and white paper and talking to my condo board to install a, a, um, a charger in my parking spot would be overwhelming. And, um, and also the extra cost of making sure that it's using the, the condo board approved electrician and up to code and all that stuff. If you have a home with a garage or a driveway, it's the, the diff- it's, it's so simple to do this. In fact, I got a press release that said that I think Chevrolet Canada is now covering the cost of like the installation of a charger in your home. Will they go down to the states and do that too? Like the the Canuck Chevrolet is going to be like, yeah, it's like a it's like a mission, a missionary. Time to cross the border, folks. We're spreading (laughs) the gospel of level two chargers, just like Sammy late at night. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you know what I mean is like it is. There's such a drastic difference between the ownership experience if you have a driveway, if you have um, your own garage or something like that, compared to if you don't. And as I mentioned, I've had good luck with the number of fast chargers in my in my neighborhood. But there are people who just don't have access to that or don't have the time to to spend on that kind of stuff. And so, it's true. You just don't need to do it. It's it, it won't work for everybody. And so, that's a big problem going into the future because some automakers have said or some countries have, have regulated the demand for zero emissions vehicles across entire lineups, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right? but I mean, I have very little faith in a. Uh, a, a political system that relies on four to five year mandates being able to legislate yeah. something 20 years from now. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you there. That's true. Um, um, is there anything that you want to say wrapping up about the 330E in particular? Um, I don't think so. No, I think I'm done with this. But uh, I do. I did forget. I actually forgot. I'm sorry. I forgot that you were into the X5 um, E-Drive Whatever it's called, X Drive thirty five E or something. I don't know. It's X- it's tough to know. <laughs> the acronyms. Were, BMW yeah. loves its its electrified acronyms. I forgot that you were into that, and um, I was expecting some pushback from you. But now, after this conversation, uh, I'm impressed that you. I, I'm surprised that you haven't checked out the three thirty E as an alternative. For somebody who's a little bit more interested in driving over an X5. Well, I think the reason I liked it so much in the X5 is because you can you can get a more powerful X5, but what's the point? Like, it's not – it's already – the electric version is already faster than anyone needs. And mm-hmm. these are not vehicles you're ever going to drive in a spirited way. So to me, I don't need an M-branded version of the X5. But for sure. the 3 Series, there is the potential that you are buying it because you want to have a fun driving experience. So it, it, it's a little bit more of a balance there, I think. Absolutely. Okay, let's uh, let's change gears and talk about whatever your your car is this yeah, week. Yeah, whatever I mean, that is. It. I mean, who whatever, knows? I forgot. You teased it last week and I forgot already. What is it? Uh, it's the 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, Sammy. I'm sorry, did you say Bronco? We should have started with your car first. Everyone wants a Bronco. 
This is the biggest deal of 2021. Everyone I, I, wants a Bronco. I hate to bring you down here, Sammy, but it's not what, a about Bronco. this Bronco conversation. It's not a Bronco. It's a Bronco Sport, and here is the and and if you buy one of these, this is a conversation you're going to be having with every single person who asks you about your vehicle. Because everyone knows the Bronco exists, no one knows there's two versions, and you're going to be Ford's educator out there in the world, letting them know the truth. Okay, but hold on. I mean, isn't there a Wrangler and a Wrangler Sport? I mean, aren't those kind of, like, relatable? Is this just the two-door version of the Bronco? No, see, even that would make sense, but it's not the case. <laughs> this, so, I, I guess there's actually three versions of the Bronco. <laughs> And the one you have is the one that's going to disappoint everyone who's interested in the other two. <laughs> like, that's oh, just, there's no okay. way around it. So, what are you they, talking about? At its, at its core, Ford did a smart thing, but the way they timed it was a little weird. They took the Escape, which mm-hmm. is a popular crossover SUV that's pretty decent, and they mm-hmm. gave it a body that looks like the Bronco. And they called it the Bronco Sport. And they also built versions that can go off-road, which is not really something you would do with the Escape. Okay. Uh, but they released this one first. So before the Bronco came out into the world, the Bronco Sport bore that banner. It carried that flag onto the battlefield. And it looks enough like a Bronco that everyone thinks it's the Bronco, especially since no one's seen the larger Bronco yet. In their minds, they have an imprinted on what that looks like. So... Every Bronco owner that I've spoken to, or every journalist who's driven this vehicle, everyone who's spoken to them about it has made the mistake of thinking it's the larger one. Now, I am somewhat antisocial, and as a result, I did not have any of these conversations. So I feel blessed by that. Hashtag blessed. Um, But, you know, the Bronco Sport, it's it's an interesting vehicle in that it's intended to give you the look of kind of an off-road vehicle with the practicality and affordability of a compact crossover. And... I think if you approach it from that angle, it's pretty mm. successful, Sammy. Okay, well, like looking at it, it reminds me. Of, this is going to sound ridiculous too. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty crazy with my takes this this week's episode. It looks like an LR2, like a Freelander, kind of like in a way. Like it looks like something that Land Rover tried to do a long time ago and Com- distill its its rugged vehicle into something more approachable. Right. It kind of has that look. It also, and don't say this too loud, looks a little bit like the early 2000s Ford Escape that you could get. <laughs> Um, that's, that's it. That's exactly yeah, it. Yeah, not okay. from the front, but from the side in the profile, because that was also a little trucklet that kind of butched things up and had some right angles in it and looked pretty decent. Okay, uh, cool. So the, the, there's two versions of the Bronco Sport. One of them has a one and a half liter three cylinder turbo with about 181 horsepower. And then the other one has a two liter turbo EcoBoost with, I think, 240 horsepower. It might be 260. Okay. Um, that sounds good. Sorry, it's the two- other one doesn't sound good. <laughs> well, so it's it's two fifty actually. the The two hundred fifty horsepower one, I think you can only get it if you get the hardcore off road versions, like the Badlands and whatnot. It's oh. aimed at that crowd. It comes with all terrain tires and it's got like skid plates and stuff. And it has this thing called goes over anything mode, I guess, which is like a, a way to get the all wheel drive system to provide you with maximum traction for the conditions. Um, okay. I drove the other one. Which was oh, the one that the you... The 1.5 liter The one. one that you automatically dismissed as soon as I brought it up. <laughs> no, hold on. I'll be honest. I've driven the 1.5 liter equipped Escape, and it was totally acceptable. There was nothing wrong with that motor. It did the job. Exactly. All- so, exactly. I would, I would use the term totally acceptable to describe this engine. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, it comes with an 8-speed automatic. It, 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 the base model Bronco is $27,000, which is pretty... Uh, Pretty pretty reasonable for what you're getting. I drove a version called the Outer Banks, which is thirty just under thirty three thousand. It the reason it has extra uh, an extra cost is it has a little bit of a different look, larger wheels, um, leather inside, heated steering wheel, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a luxury version of the vehicle. And in fact, I think it's the most expensive version until you get to the Badlands, which is. Almost the same price, but has the bigger motor. It subtracts all the luxury gear and just gives you off-road gear instead. There's also a first edition, which I'm we're not even going to talk about. It's like 40 grand. Uh, I don't know who's okay. buying that. But um, um, but when I think of Outer Banks, I think of this Netflix TV show that's called The Outer Banks and was recently awarded the MTV Movie and TV Awards Best Kiss. Is this why you is this the the is this oriented with the car anyway? Is it related I to the car? I have no response to that information. I feel like <laughs> I feel like learning that has 
just opened so many questions in my mind about first there's still mtv first kiss awards like that's what do you the thing think? as soon as you uh, you stop being an adolescent mtv just disappeared i well i mean i wish <laughs> but <laughs> no um, i thought that i thought mtv had just gone entirely to a reality show format i guess oh, award yes, shows are right. the ultimate reality show <laughs> award shows are the ultimate reality show you're right so so the, back to this back to this outer banks which is as far as I know, unrelated to that television show that you like okay. so much, um, that you keep texting me updates about uh, whenever they reveal who the real Outer Banks is at the end of the season. <laughs> but just think about the ringleader of the Pogues. Okay, if you say so. Um, the I haven't driven an Escape in a while. I've always liked the Escape. It's a good package. Mm-hmm. The Broncos Port... I like the look of it a lot. I think it's a cool idea to create a vehicle that has this kind of rugged feel. I don't need to go off-road in it. I don't think anyone is going to go off-road in it. That <clears throat> excuse me. That demographic's gonna buy the big Bronco. Mm-hmm. But there's the the but engine there's no, Yeah. There, 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 there's nothing compelling about the vehicle that when you drive it, you think, oh, yeah, I really want to own this. You know how we really like the kicks and how the Rogue has come out recently and it's very comfortable. It's got great power. It's got a nice interior, all that stuff. The the, the Bronco, you're buying it because you want all of the accessories that come with it. You want the look. You want the, um, I guess, the image of it. You, you want – it comes with uh, – all sorts of, like, you can get floodlights and stuff, accessories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's basically the lifestyle that comes with the Bronco is far more compelling than the actual mechanical package of the Bronco itself. And that's it's not a bad... The Bronco ba- Sport, yeah. Yeah, okay. sorry, Bronco Sport. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm not no. saying that's that's a terrible thing to do to sell a vehicle. If you want to reskin the, the uh, Escape and give it a different personality, I'm cool with that. But uh, it's, it's not a vehicle that's really going to impress you or wow you in any way. Okay, so the most important thing I need to say about this is how come these buyers haven't bought um, a Renegade or a Compass or the other cars, the compact Jeeps, right? So the Renegade is a lot smaller. And I think that the fact that it was kind of based on a Fiat platform and isn't particularly smooth. um, Oh, man, that powertrain. You want to talk about powertrains? Yeah. Well, it's also the the, the (laughs) Renegade's also a very old design. Okay. I don't really see them as competitive. The Compass. I mean, maybe. Or the Cherokee. Cherokee is a little bit bigger, uh, but it doesn't have the same kind of retro look. So right. I think that that's what's really pulling people in on this vehicle. Um, so then is this a success on Ford's end that they've done this, like, uh, Halo vehicle, like, uh, watering down effect with the real Bronco to the miniature Bronco, the Bronco Sport? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it was a Better than move. Jeep has done with the Wrangler and Jeep Grand Cherokee? Well, they've the never made they never made a baby Wrangler. I mean, they just never did it. This is this is in effect a baby Bronco. It looks exactly like one. We we never got a tiny little. I mean, you can't take the roof off like you can with the big Bronco, but we mm-hmm. never got a tiny little Wrangler. You know, we got a bunch like of. You can take the roof off of a Renegade, which is weird. Well, you can't take the roof off. You can take the. It has like big lift off panels, like a target top. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. which is kind of strange. Because where it's are you going to put of it? a roof? I don't know. Yeah, where are you going to put that? Uh, the Bronco Sport had like so. I, I hauled some stuff in it just to see what I could fit. It tires? has a, no, not tires this time. It was a bunch of um, yard waste, which is a sexy thing to say. Y- yard waste. Uh, the the back <laughs> of the yard podcast. It has <laughs> it has a strange cargo thing. Which is like a cargo... (laughs) Sorry, I laughed so hard at that. A strange cargo thing. Thanks for being so descriptive, Ben. I think it's a table. I'm not sure. (laughs) No, I'm telling you this because when I picked up the car, it was rattling in the back. And I'm like, oh man, is the glass rattling? Because the glass lifts up. You can reach in over the tailgate if you want, which is a nice touch. But I thought maybe it wasn't latched. It turns out that there's this like layer of hard plastic, like... Uh, like almost like a tub that goes over top of the cargo area that acts as a cargo cover, but it has these legs that pop down from it too. And one of those legs was hanging loose and it was banging all the time. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because when I needed to haul my yard waste, I had to somehow find a place to put this because you can fold it in half and still not have enough room for anything you need to haul. And then you lift it up and kind of stuff it up against the back seat, and that gave me the space I needed. It was, it was in the way. Most cargo covers just suck. Like I, they're so annoying. Um, this one, I, I don't, I don't get it, Sammy. It, it's just so big and bulky. Like I don't need it. I guess you could use it as a shelf and put extra cargo on top if you wanted to sacrifice your window. I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm looking at this in a press photo of some people who look like they're going to go rock climbing, I think. No, nah, they're not. They're just posers. And um, first of all, the leg of this table extends outside of the cargo area. It's meant to sit on the bumper of the car, which is weird. Yeah. And additionally, there's so much equipment stacked on top of this table on top of this table that nobody would be able to drive it. Look at with with appropriate rearward rearward visibility. No, the the, the back window of the Bronco is quite small. It looks fairly large because of the way they tint the uh, like the glass is big, but the actual opening is a bit small. When I had my bags of yard waste, they blocked the entire area I needed to see, which is not a big deal. I can use my side mirrors, but it's it's a it's a somewhat tight cargo space. Okay, I feel like we're okay. So hold on. If they got rid of the Escape, would the Bronco Sport be an acceptable replacement? I haven't driven an Escape in a while. It's really hard to say. I think it might be. Um, the the acceleration from that engine is languid. It is like <laughs> you're gonna get there, but it's gonna take its time. It, it's it, I'm and again, I'm okay with that in this vehicle. I never really felt like I wanted to be in a hurry. It's not a dynamically interesting vehicle, but it is perfectly acceptable. Um, yeah, I think you probably could replace the Escape with this, but I don't think Ford ever will because the Escape sells very well. This is going to sell very well. It's better to have both of those things. Okay, cool. Um, and then there was this other thing that I heard where Ford is going to make a specific dealership or experience center for the Bronco and the Bronco Sport. That seems like a lot of money being thrown at this product lineup, right? Well, I mean, I think the keyword is Bronco here. They're also going to make yeah. like small Bronco dealerships, aren't they? Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, yeah, because I thought I thought you were saying Experience Center, like a place where you could go and oh, off-road no, no. And, and break your Bronco Sport. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I should have worded that better. Like, uh, I didn't think it was like a retail center, but yeah, essentially a dealership, which sounds like a lot of investment, a oh, lot of sure. money to spend on. They're all in on this, and the sad thing is, they're having production problems with the hardtops. So many people who were excited and bought regular large Broncos, they can't get their vehicles until maybe twenty twenty three model year. So uh, they're being offered things like you can get a soft top now and they'll prep it for hard top, which you can buy later. Or you can get a credit that will guarantee you the same price you would have had now on a 2023 model year if you want to wait. It's it's frustrating. I know a lot of people who have ordered these vehicles who are really excited about them. And it's it's not really Ford's fault in the sense that it's an it's a third party that's making the tops that has caused the problem. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to driving the Bronco Sport, but maybe not in the summer. To me, this seems like a winter, a fall and winter kind of car to drive because then you get to see whether or not it having Bronco, if it has any Bronco credibility, at least in terms of off-road. Well, I think you'd have uh, to get the you'd have to get the Badlands, right? Like it's and and most people are not going to take these off-road. I I think the idea of you know I've always said and this is gonna I'm gonna get some heat for this, so don't at me, but I I love a Rubicon look Wrangler that didn't have all the Rubicon stuff on it because I don't necessarily need that hardcore of an axle and, like, gearing and all that stuff. So just a regular, like, base a base Wrangler with the ginormous wheels. Yeah, I think that would be fun. <laughs> I think that would be fun. Yeah, and that's cool. This is the Bronco Sport version of that. So cool. I, I, I think it's... We always get on car companies' cases for making vehicles that look just like everyone else's vehicles, and Ford has done right. something very different here. They made a crossover that doesn't really look like anything else, and I think they should be commended for that. Okay, good call. Um, I want to change gears one more time into a really cool conversation that you had with someone very special. Can you uh, can you give us the, the deets? Yeah, uh, this morning I had an interview with Dan Casey, who is the screenwriter of Fast and Furious 9, or F9 as it's known. Which is a movie that literally just came out. Yeah, it came out, I'm going to say, last Friday. This guy has time for you, Ben? <laughs> Sammy, this guy has time for everyone. He was so nice, so kind. <laughs> he he answered all of my questions, no matter how off the script they were about the movie. Uh, I talked to him about stuff as diverse as the actual timeline of the, the series. Because as you know... Uh, Catching you up on the Fast and Furious series is 20 years of movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. But they were filmed like chrono- chronologically out of order. So Tokyo Drift is takes place after the sixth movie, like in terms of the movie timeline in the universe of Fast and Furious. That's and right. It's, it's a little bit confusing. Justin Lin, the director of F9 and also the director of Tokyo Drift, that was his first one. He intended that movie to be kind of a timeless movie, not necessarily set in any particular period. Um, but what's interesting is... 
I asked. There's there's the timelessness of the third movie, you know, Tokyo Drift. Then Tokyo, sorry, Fast and Furious One came out in 2001, and some people say, okay, it was set in 2001, and then some people say, no, it was set in 2004, just to like kind of bunch everything up. But that doesn't leave any room for Too Fast, Too Furious, Sammy. Okay, so we've got a movie. We've got a movie with no timeline. We don't know where it fits. Uh, yeah, exactly. We we don't know where that movie exists in the actual, you know, <laughs> I, I guess. it's right after the first movie. Yeah, well, that's what I would thought too. And then if you go online, some people were like, well, you know, there's a weird scene in Fast and Furious 5 or Fast and Furious 4. I can't remember which one where Dom looks at um, Paul, Brian, Brian's character and says, now you know what it's like to be on the other side of the wanted poster. And if he says that... Then he has no idea that Too Fast, Too Furious exists. Yeah, he has no idea that Brian had been on the run from the from the cops for like a, an entire movie and perhaps even longer than that. And, and some people have explained that away by saying that, oh, you know, Dom just wasn't – he was outside of Brian's life at that point in time. He doesn't know anything about it. Okay, fair enough. So I asked – I asked Dan Casey because he said he had to do a ton of research for F9 because they jumped back and forth in time both back before the Fast and Furious movies started to get into Dom's uh, history. Mm-hmm. Dominic Toretto, the character. I'm not just saying these character names like everyone in our audience knows who they are. I'm just going to assume you do. Uh, okay. And then jumping back into the present, he, he said that uh, I, I, I watched these movies over and over and over to kind of build up the mythology and understand the characters. And I'm like, How okay. How does he have any brain cells left? I asked him, I'm like, when does Too Fast, Too Furious take place? And his answer is he doesn't know. Oh, no. He doesn't know. That's the screenwriter like, from Fast and Furious. Hold on. Did he just say, I don't know, like no, that? No, or no, no. Did he, he said did he no one like knows. a lot of preamp? Oh, okay. He says straight up, it's something that a lot of people are, there's a lot of conjecture about it, but there's no definitive answer that from, from his side, which I think is, he's like, it's the one that doesn't fit. And I think that's fascinating that we have this like film universe that has so many characters and details and movies and yet there's this one movie that's like floating in the background that when no one's sure where to plug it into the franchise oh man that's so weird and i wonder okay but i know that i think i know um i don't mean to spoil anything but i think fast nine has some flashbacks throughout the the movie yeah yeah yeah. that's that's why he was watching the older movies Okay, so I wonder if they refer... So does that mean that they just never refer to Too Fast at all? No, it's not. he's not saying the movie doesn't exist. He's just saying <laughs> they don't know when it happened. But it clearly must have happened before Fast 9. Yeah, before Fast... Well, I mean... Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. All right, what else I think you- that's wild. I think that's wild. That's illuminating, yeah. Another thing, another thing I really appreciated talking with, with uh, Dan Casey was... He talked about how he wanted to give Michelle Rodriguez's character, Letty, more screen time in this movie. And that's difficult to do because you have a big ensemble cast. Um, you don't normally – normally you would have the main character in every scene, but you don't really have that in Fast and Furious. Like Dom is in theory the main character now. But because there's so many other characters, you can't really do the same thing you do in a, in a non-ensemble movie. But he was saying that when he watched F8, which is a movie he enjoyed, the end of the movie – there's a scene where Dom kind of introduces Letty to his baby, right? That he had with someone else. And he felt that that scene really didn't have the emotional depth that it needed to have. Like Mm -hmm. that there was so much more in that conversation between the two of them about that moment that needed to happen. And he understands, you know, it's the end of the movie, they're wrapping it up. But when he got to F9, he wanted to give Rodriguez's character the chance to have those emotions, and to be able okay. to be more fully developed and to bring back the idea of the family and the connections that were in the earlier movies that were more character focused. And in fact, um, Michelle Rodriguez brought it. She asked to have a female screenwriter come in to work on dialogue for the female characters. And he worked with that person for a couple of weeks and said it was a great experience. And he feels it really helped improve the movie. And I know that Fast and Furious is a franchise that gets a lot of attention for being diverse in terms of ethnicity. Mm-hmm. and uh, cultures and it's one of the few if if not the only hollywood blockbuster that has non-caucasian characters in lead roles on a regular yep. basis that's but, what i really love about it yeah it's 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 fantastic and to and have the global nature of it not it's not it's not just taking place in one place every time yeah the fandom is really truly worldwide uh, but to have dan casey come in 
and say, I, I respect all of that, but I think that, you know, this is someone who's been here from the beginning, and we need to have the women in this franchise who played such a role get their chance to shine in a way that maybe they haven't, and balance that out was something really commendable and, and unexpected for a film like this one. It feels pretty um, modern. I think this is what we should be expecting regularly, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And if, you know, if we're not films like Fast and Furious don't really represent society in the sense that they're they're crazy uh, action movies that are so over the top. But they do represent... Yeah, they're so- like eye candy, right? Like constant eye candy or whatever you call it. But they do represent society in terms of representation. And okay. that representation is something that shouldn't be overlooked. And um, if you can make that much more of a connection with your audience by showing them real characters that uh, reflect their own values or reflect their own lifestyles. I think that's something you got to do. Very cool. Um, How did you get that? Did you ask him? Ask him what? That question? What did you ask him to get to that answer? I I knew that Casey was someone who was interested in in that type of character development in the franchise. And I asked him, I had read some stuff where he had mentioned it in the past, and I just kind of wanted to dive deeper into that with him. So he kind of went down that that rabbit hole with me about uh, Michelle Rodriguez and working with her on that. Well, I think during the the lead up to F9 releasing, there was a lot of really interesting um, stories being told about the movie and its impact. Um, on Hollywood. But one of the more interesting things I read was from The Ringer about um, the character Han and that impression that it left on on audiences. Um, I don't know if I can articulate it very well, but I do think that a lot of people weren't expecting that character to be so well-received, a fan favorite. And now that, you know, you do have that, he was brought in in one of the other movies that made it, you know, that that helped set that odd time line that the Fast and the Furious franchise lives in, that he had to come, essentially he had to come back. But there is like a, there's a weird part to the Fast and the Furious movie, which is his character is essentially killed by another character who ends up becoming a good guy, which seems um, like inappropriate in the grand scheme of things, right? Yeah, so I mean, there's a, you can do a really deep dive on actor Sun Kang and his roles in, or his one role, but his, his multiple appearances in the Fast and Furious franchise as Han. I love that. I'd love that deep dive. I think that's uh, a lot of fun. Uh, okay, well, when when that character was originally written for Tokyo Drift, and we're talking about Han, who's the guy, he's essentially the second most important character in Tokyo Drift. He he sets everything up for the main character. He operates a, a criminal enterprise slash drift organization. Um, he, he drives the plot in a lot of the ways. But that character was originally written as a cameo, and it was supposed to be done by a rapper. Uh, they wanted to have some pop culture connection for the movie. And when Lil Bow Wow was cast in the movie as a different character, they realized that they, they didn't necessarily need to have two rappers in the movie. They're like, okay, we've got our bases covered there. Uh, how about they asked director Justin Lin if he had some other ideas for the character. And he said, well, I, I've always wanted to have a very cool Asian American man uh, in, in this type of role. And yes. um, he had, he his his response from Universal was well how do you make an asian american man cool what? and that was that was legitimately what they said to him and to me that's a baffling thing to say especially to an asian american man straight up oh, <laughs> but he what he did was his answer was he took this he did this movie called better luck tomorrow which is i highly recommend everyone listening go out and watch this movie it came out late 90s early 2000s um and that was the first place i ever saw sun kang and he had a character in that movie where um he was kind of a badass. Uh, he ends up making some bad choices and there's consequences and stuff. But he said, okay, here's what, here's what my conception of a, of a, a cool American, Asian-American man is. He sent, them the, he sent that movie to Universal. They watched it. They were on board. Han's character was essentially a continuation of Sun Kang's character from the other movie. That's how they played it. Cool. And um, That's when, one way to do it. <laughs> yeah. So – I think it's fair to say Han is the third most popular character in the Fast and Furious franchise. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's up for debate. There's, there's Toretto, there's Paul Walker's character, and then there's Han. And mm. when he was killed by another character who was then accepted into the into the family 
in a further movie as though that hadn't happened. Um, there was a lot of online discourse where people were upset by it. And they were like, you know, this this white dude comes in and he kills an Asian character and that's cool and we can forgive that and it's fine. When most of the other f- parts of the franchise are driven by revenge, you know, like so, yeah. many, so many other films had revenge-oriented plots. Um, and there was this whole uh, Justice for Han hashtag that yeah. happened online. And Sun Kang says that when that happened, originally he was embarrassed by it. He was like, okay, you know, I, this shouldn't be about me. It should be about the franchise. It's not really I'm – not, I'm not a part of it anymore. Like you're kind of drawing the, the attention away from it. It's not what I'm, not what I'm intending. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he started to really kind of listen to the arguments that were being made. And he came around to an understanding of – how it looks um, when you have representation like that and then that's taken away. So when Justin Lin came back to the franchise for F9, all this is swirling around. Um, and they they decided that they wanted him to be a part of F9 and they initially planned it on being flashbacks. Like the whole idea was he would be involved and, and it would be part of the world building that got them to the moment of F9. But three months, Sammy... Before they started shooting, they decided to resurrect him. And it was a really tough decision because both Justin Lin and Dan Casey resisted the idea of bringing Han back because they wanted there to be real consequences in the world of Fast and Furious. It's like they'd already brought Letty back from the dead, essentially, in a past movie. Justin Lin didn't want to be just the kind of guy who was known for, okay, well... This guy was killed and it had an emotional resonance at the time, but we're just going to wipe that out by bringing him back and everything's fine now. Like, that's not – dramatically, that's not a strong thing to do. So they tried very hard not to do it, but eventually it just made sense to have him come back in a more meaningful way in the film. And Sun Kang was was up for the idea and that's how it got written in. But it's fascinating to me, like talking to him today, to find out how late in the process that became part of the movie. Very cool. Um I really love hearing that thought, and I can't wait to hear those thoughts, and I can't wait to read the story when you've got that um, written out and published. It yeah, is that's going to be coming out uh, <laughs> on, at, at driving.ca, and we'll put a link when that gets published in one of the future publica- future podcast um, notes. And before we finish the this week's episode, I have one more, one more curveball to throw your way. Um, I got a listener question. He asks uh, – this is from at Lynchware on, on Twitter – he says, you and I were talking about the K5 and about enthusiast mid-sized sedans, and now he wants to know what is the best enthusiast mid-sized sedan that's out there. And this is a very difficult question. An enthusiast mid-sized sedan, when we talk about that, are we, are we saying no luxury? Yeah, we're saying no luxury. Okay. Ooh, that is a really tough one. So they're all either front-wheel drive with a smattering of all-wheel drive, right? Yes. Essentially, that's, that's the way it would be. What and would so you go I, with? Well, I think – you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me because I think the V6 equipped Camry um, with the XSE or the TRD package or something like that is actually surprisingly fun to drive. Um, has a great powertrain, really quick um, and kind of cool. The reason I like it over, I think the alternative, which is the Hyundai Sonata N line or the related Kia K5 GT is that those vehicles with their turbocharged four-cylinders have a ton of torque steer, like way too much. And I just didn't get that from the V6, which is uh, in the Camry, and it's very smooth. What do you think? I'm going to go with the Honda Accord with the 2-liter turbo. Oh, how did I miss that? I, you can get it with a manual, right? I ooh, Can you? With, with the 2-liter? I thought only the smaller turbo had the manual. Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe one. Maybe okay. I, maybe I've got it confused. But I, I mean, I don't know. Engine too. But but I I just like that power plant. It's really good. Uh, and for a front wheel drive car, the Accord handles quite nicely. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I think it looks decent too. It just it's a, it's an all around impressive package that's that's fun to drive at that price point. And that that's it's two hundred and fifty two hundred fifty two horsepower. I mean, that's pretty decent for for a two liter turbo. And then the other question I had is. What is the coolest midsize sedan or the most enthusiast-oriented midsize sedan that you can remember, like, of all time? Oh, like, I, I mean, come on. I mean, it, so, if, if, okay, if we're going of all time. Yeah, there's then, so many in this list. Maybe we should just talk about it and let the listeners tell us what they think is or cool. Or you, dec- you could do it decade by decade because if you start in the 60s, midsize sedans are where the muscle car movement right. came from. Like, okay. it, was a, it was a midsize intermediate body with a big motor. Okay. So, like, if if you're if you're talking like of all time, you got to include cars like the GTX and the mm. Roadrunner and and things like that. You know, well, and the sedans. Yes. 
Yeah, you could. Well, sedan. Well, I mean, hmm. See, <laughs> but you could you could get a Coronet with like a big motor. I don't know if you call it an enthusiast car though. Okay. Okay. Then, I mean, I'm not that well versed in things pre '80s. I think so. Well, let, what about like a Taurus SHO? That's what I was thinking. Is that a Taurus SHO would fit that bill really well? Right? Yeah, that was that was. I mean, it wasn't super cheap when it came out, but it was definitely an enthusiast enthusiast car. Um, and I would say there's also like Legacy Spec B and Mazda Speed or Mazda Speed Sixes. Okay, I think those are kind of cool. There's uh, if you want to look at something like uh, the Buick Regal that came out a few oh, years yeah. ago. I don't know like if that the counts. recent one. Yeah, the recent one. Uh, the mm-hmm. one that came out, I want to say like the 2012-2013 era, whenever that was, uh, you could get a manual with the Grand Sport, I think. Mm-hmm. And that had a 300 horsepower Turbo 4, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. That that was a fun car to drive. They kind of neutered it in the generation that followed, unfortunately. But that first They one, went more style over performance. Yeah, the Regal GS, was that was an in- intriguing car. And I guess that's almost luxury, but not quite, you know? Okay, cool. Um, if you, dear listener, have any ideas of what your favorite um, enthusiast sedan is over the years, um, you should really reach out to us. Or, you know what, if you have anything else you want to talk about, like our Fast and Furious conversation or um, what Ben thought about the Bronco, not real Bronco, the Bronco Sport, or my BMW 330e conversation, you can get in touch with us really, really easily. You just head on over to our website, you hit the contact button, and you fill out the form, and that lands in our inbox. Additionally, you can email us the old-fashioned way. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. And then additionally, you can uh, reach out to us on social media. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, if you're, like you're laughing, if you're ever on social media like Twitter. Um, and you can find Ben on Instagram. He's at HuntingBenjamin. And uh, you yeah. can, yeah, I was going to say, if you wanted to subscribe to us or listen to older podcasts or uh, just kind of, we, we sometimes have pictures up and links to to things that we're talking about. You can find it, all of that at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com or you can search um, on your favorite podcatcher. We are everywhere. We're on Apple, Google, Amazon, um, Spotify, pretty much all the big ones and a lot of the small Yard, ones too. Yard Waste Cast. Yard Waste Cast, Waste Cast 2.0 and the up and coming uh, Bag of Sticks Cast. Um, what are you talking about next week, Ben? Next week, I'm going to be talking about the uh, Jeep Wrangler 4xe, Sammy. Sammy, what are you talking about next week? Uh, I'm talking about the Jeep Wrangler 4xe. Oh, wow. That's, I mean... Two times... Wait, what is this? It's it's two times 4xe, right? Two times 4xe. It's it's the Wrangler squared. That's all you need to know next week on the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. I'll talk to you then, Ben. Ben. Bye-bye. Bye.